You're listening to a presentation of The Rising. We're always encouraged to know God is changing lives through this ministry. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know and send an email to stories at wearetherising.com. Now, prepare your heart and mind to hear a word from God. Um, but today we're starting a brand new series until Jesus runs this town. And I want to just, just get right into it. I want to give you the title for my sermon straight away. And all the type A personalities are going to love this because you're getting it. You're going to be able to write this down at the top of your note card. Here it is. Title for my sermon today is when a church exists in a city. When a church exists in a city. And you got to put an ellipsis at the end, dot, dot, dot. When a church exists in a city, dot, dot, dot. In 130 A.D., Diognetus received a letter from a Roman reporter. Now, we don't know who this Roman reporter was, but he received this letter. And in this letter, this reporter was reporting on a peculiar people who had cropped up around the first century and were still around during the second century. And here's what this Roman reporter reported to Diognetus. He said, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them, or every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, that are Christians in the world. And so this reporter was trying to describe this group of people who lived in the early century, and there was just something different about them. They lived in a different way where they just didn't fit into society. They, they, they stood out in some way. They stood out so much so that the whole world began to take notice. And what I want to do throughout this series is I want to figure out what was it about those Christians then that we might be missing here and now? Well, what is it we can learn from them so that we stand out to really spark a movement in this city? Like I said, we're starting this brand new series called Until Jesus Runs This Town. And I want to explore throughout this series, what does that mean? What, what does it look like until Jesus runs this town? What are we saying when we say until Jesus runs this town? And also, what part do you and I have to play in this whole thing about Jesus running this town? Now, Jesus uh, was a real person. Right? I mean, he was a real person who really lived 2,000 years ago. He lived 6,000 miles away in Roman-occupied Israel. 
And so Jesus was a real person. History doesn't debate that. Historians agree that Jesus really did live. We have the the historical accounts of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers who wrote about Jesus' life. Uh, We also have accounts that are extra biblical, uh, writings outside of the Bible from people who lived at that time who wrote about Jesus. People like Tacitus and Josephus let us know that Jesus was a real person who really lived. We see uh, the historical movement of the church that was birthed from Jesus' ministry. There's this movement that took place that never would have happened if there wasn't a real person who started it. And then also we have the historical accounts of Saul of Tarsus who opposed Jesus. He opposed Christians, but later became a Christian himself because he met the resurrected Jesus. And so Jesus was a real person who really lived. There's historical evidence, in fact, for that. Now, what we have to determine is who was Jesus? Now, Jesus told us who he was himself. He said that he was God. And listen, I I get it. Not everybody who says they're God is God. Most of them are crazy. Actually, they all are crazy. But Jesus said he was God, and then he proved it through miracles. By the way, if you're wondering, a miracle, the purpose of a miracle is to give credibility to the message of a messenger. The purpose of a miracle is to give credibility to the message of a messenger. And so Jesus said that he was God and he proved it through the miracles that he performed. And so there was this one time uh, where he was teaching and these friends brought their, their friend to him and their friend was lame. Like he was just not cool. He was like back in the 90s, right? Um, he was lame. He couldn't walk. He was disabled. He couldn't walk and he was lying on a mat. And so his friends bring him to Jesus and Jesus looks at the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, imagine that the friends had something else in mind. See, they wanted Jesus to heal the man of his physical uh, problem, but Jesus healed him of his spiritual problem. He said, your sins are forgiven. You know, sometimes we're coming to God asking him for what we want and we get disappointed because he gives us what we need. Did that blow right by you? Sometimes we get disappointed with God because he's not giving us what we want. Instead, he's giving us what we need most. He looks at the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, he says this because he's trying to tell everybody else in the room a deeper message because there's some religious people who hear that and they say, well, hold on now. You can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Oh, so you're claiming to be God. By saying this man's sins are forgiven, you're saying that you're God. That's impossible. And then Jesus, knowing their thoughts, the scripture says, said, okay, well, which is easier? For me to say to the man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and go home. He said, but so you know, I have the authority to forgive sins, aka I'm God. He looked at the man and he said, get up, take your mat, and go home. And you know what the man did? He got up, took his mat, and went home. He was healed just like that. Jesus performed the miracle to give credibility to the message that he was presenting. He was saying he was God, and he said, if you don't believe me, just look at the evidence of the miracles. And so Jesus said, I'm God, and here's how you can know it through the miracles I've performed. But Jesus also said something else. He said why he came to this earth, why he lived on this earth in the first place. Because if he really is God, and the miracles show that, then why did he come? Why did God put on flesh? And Jesus said, the reason why I came is so that you could be forgiven and given grace and new life. Maybe you've heard this phrase from from people if you've been in church, uh, or maybe, I mean, this is your first time in church, but you've heard Christians say this, that Jesus died on the cross for you. 
Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus died on the cross for you. And you know, for so long, I never really understood what that meant. Like when I was new to Christianity and people would say, Jesus died on the cross for you. I, I wondered like, what does that have to do with who, why? I don't care. Who cares about that? Because how does some guy dying 2000 years ago impact me? What's I mean, people have died all throughout history and they don't affect me. Why does this one guy dying on a cross, why does that have any effect on me? And, and maybe you wonder that when you hear that phrase, Jesus died on the cross for you. And I wanna, as best I can, try and explain that and what that means to you. And, and really, I wanna show you how Jesus explained it. Here's one of the ways he said it. It's in John 3, 14. He said, just as Moses, and this is going to clear it up for all of you, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. You're welcome. What does that mean? What? Just as Moses? Don't clap. You're like, what? what does that mean? Jesus needs to be lifted up like a snake? Here, here's what Jesus is referring to. See, Years and years and years ago, in Old Testament history, in the book of Numbers, there was a time where the nation of Israel, God's chosen people who were led by Moses, um, had rebelled against God. And because of that, God sends snakes to infest the land and kill the people. Uh, you may think, that's pretty mean of God. But here's the thing, you want to do worse things to people you don't like in your life right? Somebody does less to you and you're like, I want to kill them, right? So, I mean, sure you never would, but uh, maybe, I don't know. I don't know your life. I don't know your life. So uh, stay away from me. But so God sends these snakes because they rebel against him. And then the people cry out and they say, hey, help us, save us. Like, like Moses, can you do something about this? Here's what's recorded, Numbers 21, 7. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. I want to point that out real quick. They said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against God's man. Just saying. Be nice to me, okay? So he said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. By the way, I am so glad God does not send snakes to kill us when we talk bad about somebody. What? You talk bad about people? What's wrong with you, dirty sinner? You need it. No, I'm just joking. Don't give yourself away now. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the, sin, the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, take a snake or make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So Moses lifted up a bronze snake on a pole so that anyone who would look at it would live. Jesus said in the same way, Moses lifted up this snake and anyone who uh, diverted their eyes to the snake and saw that, they would be saved in the same same way, I'm going to be lifted up on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. And anyone who would look to me would be forgiven. Anyone who would look to me to find their hope and life would discover that my grace and forgiveness will flow out onto them and the venom of sin that's in them would seep away. See, this is what Jesus is saying. I'm going to go to the cross to pay for the sins of the whole world so that anyone who would look to me would have life. And here's, here's another thing Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is John 4, 14, 6. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he said, I, I've come so that I could be lifted up. And if anyone would look to me, they would be saved because I am the only way to God. Sometimes people hear that and they think that's arrogant. They think that Jesus is full of himself. They think that this is exclusive, that Christianity is just so narrow, but it's just the opposite. Because Jesus said he was God, and if he was God, then he knows what God knows. And if he knows there's only one way to him, then by him saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's actually very kind. That's not arrogant. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what he's doing is he's giving us insider information. And we should see that and not say that's arrogant or exclusive, but thank God he gave me the way. Thank God he told me how to get to him. Thank God I don't have to stumble around in my life to try and figure out how do I make sense of my life? How do I have a relationship with God? Thank God that he told me how to get there. It's like if you were coming to my house and I said, well, you got to go down, and I won't tell you where I live, but <laughs> you were coming to my house, I said, you got to go down this street and then take a left. And you say, well, hold on now, that's arrogant because can I go this way? I say, no, actually you can't because there's construction on that road and it's blocked. So if you try and go that way, you're going to waste your time. You're going to hit a dead end. Well, can I go this other way? No. Well, actually, because there was that big storm that happened the other day and a tree fell down. It's blocking the road. The only way for you to get to my house is this way. You wouldn't look at me and say, I can't believe you. You arrogant, exclusive little, you, you wouldn't because you wouldn't talk about me like that anyway, but because snakes will come and get you, but, but it's kind that God tells us, here's how you get to me. Here's how you get into a relationship with me. And see, back then, there was this thing that they did. See, the, the understanding is this. You and I were created in the image of God to have a relationship with God. But we sin. Sin is everything we do to rebel against God, to go our own way instead of God's way. Uh, sin is everything we've done that we regret, that we feel ashamed of. Sin is everything that we've done to hurt ourselves and to hurt other people. And what sin does is it separates us from God. And ultimately, what God said in his economy, and God created us, so he creates it the way that he wants. He says, because of sin, it separates us from him. When we sin, it brings about death in our life. And you've experienced this death. You've done something you know wasn't right, you knew you shouldn't have done, and you experienced this emptiness inside of you, this regret, this pain, this hurt, this shame, that's death. That when we sin, death comes about. And God said, in order for your sin to be taken away, for this death to be taken away, and for you to experience life, what needs to happen is a life needs to be sacrificed for your sin. And so what people would do is they'd take lambs and sheep, they'd take doves, and they'd sacrifice these animals. And it was like these animals were giving their life so that I could live. It was their life in exchange for mine. But then Jesus comes onto the scene, and in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, he says this, that is why or this is the commentary that's given to us. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you didn't want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you gave me a body to offer. And then Hebrews 10, 9. And then he said, look, I have come to do your will. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, Jesus came to live a perfect life, a life we can't live, ultimately so that he could die the death that we deserve. 
When Jesus went to the cross, because he was God in some supernatural way, what he did was he took your sin and my sin, everything we regret, everything we're ashamed of, past, present, and future, he took it on himself. And when Jesus died on the cross, our sin died with him. That is the point of the cross. The cross pays the cost of our sin. That's why when we say Jesus died for you, what we're saying is that Jesus took everything that separates you from God on himself so that if you would just look to him and decide to follow him and be immersed into him, then you would enter into the life you've always longed to have. And I just want to take a moment real quick. I, I, I don't know where you are in this whole decision about what to do with Jesus, but I just want to invite you, if you've never made the decision to say yes to Jesus, this isn't some emotional plea. I don't have the band playing behind me to get you in some emotional frenzy. I just want to, just want to ask you today, have you made the decision to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I believe that you died for me on the cross, that you rose again from the dead, and I want to give you my life. I want to repent, the Bible says. I want to stop following my way, and I want to follow your way. And it all begins when I get baptized, immersed into you. Because in baptism, we're lowered down into the water, and it's like we're buried with Christ, the scriptures say. Our old self is gone, and when we come up, we come up a brand new creation. And so I wonder, have you ever made the decision to follow Jesus and to be immersed into him? And I'm not talking about your parents made that decision for you when you were a baby. Have you made the decision to say, I believe. I'm looking to the cross for my salvation, for my forgiveness. I'm looking to the cross for life. And because of that, I want to follow you. If you've never made that decision, and listen, you can, you can make this decision anytime, but I want to give you an opportunity right here, right now. If you've never made that decision and you're ready, when you came in, you received a note card, and at the bottom of that note card is a connect card. At the bottom of that connect card, there's a box that says, I want to accept Christ as my Savior and be baptized. If you've never made the decision to say yes to Jesus, I want to invite you, sometime during this worship experience, would you mark that box and drop that card off at the black tables? we got some people there who would love to talk to you about your next steps and about seeing you baptized. We're actually baptizing someone in a couple weeks from now, and you can join them, and you can be a part of that as well. So... Jesus said, I am the son of God. He came to die on a cross, but he didn't just die on a cross. He was buried once he was dead in a cave, in a tomb. And he laid there for three days. But three days after Jesus was killed and buried, he rose again from the grave. He came back to life. He resurrected. He didn't get resuscitated. Somebody didn't go in there and, and, and perform CPR on him. He didn't just wake up, but he came back to life. And he explained that he laid down his life and he took up his life on his own will, on his own cord, with his own power. So three days later, Jesus woke up, stretched, kicked the stone out of the way, and walked out of the tomb alive. And then he showed himself to people. He appeared to people to give evidence for the resurrection. There were people who saw Jesus crucified. Oh, I'm crying, he's dead. And then they see him alive walking to them. What? You're alive. I saw you dead, and now we're having breakfast together. Right? Like, this is what happened. There were people who saw Jesus die, and then they saw him alive. And he was hanging out with them. And then we say, God is, these are people who said, I saw him. If you went to some of them and said, that didn't really happen. Like, are you kidding me? 
I saw him die on the cross. I saw the spirit jabbed into his side, blood poured out. And then it was so crazy. Three days later, he was like, hey, I got some fish. You want to join me for some breakfast? You can't convince me he didn't rise because I spent time with him. And these same people told us about their, their stories. One of them, James, was Jesus' brother. See, James believed that Jesus really was the Son of God. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Son of God? Probably for you to see them die and come back three days later alive. This is what happens with James. That's one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection. The very own brother of Jesus believed that he was the Son of God. And you know that's hard because you know your brother. You know your sister. You're like, uh-uh, not them. But James came to believe. And so Jesus rose again from the dead, and he spent about 40 days with his followers. And then at the end of 40 days, he got them together. He got 11 of them together on this mountaintop in Galilee. And he said, okay, I'm leaving. Like, I started this ministry thing, but tag, you're it. I'm going to preach a sermon in, in, in three or four weeks called Tag, You're It. But this is what he does. He says, okay, I'm leaving. Now it's up to you to carry on what I've started. And then he floats off into the sky. And then his followers are like, what are we going to do now? Well, I guess, I guess we should probably do what he told us to do. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He said this. Let me see. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this is Jesus where he says to them, this is your time here, down here. It's your time. He says, bye. And he leaves. And so the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they're like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And they're just hanging out and they're confused. And 10 days later, they're in this upper room meeting, gathering, just kind of like what we're doing here. And it says that God's spirit came into that room, entered into them, and infused them with this kind of power. By the way, when you become a Christian, God's spirit comes to make his home in you. He dwells in you. He infuses you with this power. So he's leading you now. He's guiding you. He helps you overcome in the temptations and the addictions that you face. There's just this power. I can't really explain it. And you don't always feel it, but, but, but you now are not doing life alone. And so God's spirit enters into these, these people. They go out and they preach these sermons in the city of Jerusalem. And it says that day, it's the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 people made a decision to accept Jesus and be baptized into him. You know, I can't wait for the day when we see numbers like that in this church. Because if God did it then, he'll do it again. For the day, and, he, and we're even further along, we should see that surpassed. I can't wait for the day. But we got to take baby steps. So my next goal is to see us have 100 people baptized in one year. And when that happens, man, that's going to be an amazing year. But so 3,000 people are baptized that day. And this is the beginning of the movement of the church. Now, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Let me hear you say ekklesia. Good. You guys are Greek scholars. Awesome. So ecclesia means gathering. And so what happened that day was a gathering of people came together uh, with the resurrection in common. They had the resurrection in common. And so they started gathering based on the resurrection. By the way, in the book of Hebrews, the apostle Paul is writing to the church and he says, don't 
like don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Like for the early church, what they did was they got together and they met. They made their meeting time a priority. I just want to encourage you today to, to not be in the habit of not meeting together, to, to, to don't be the Christian who comes to church once a month or once every six weeks, but make this a priority. You say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and I'm going to show my kids what it means to make God a priority by being in his house because that's what we do. So... They met together, they met together, they met together, and as they met together, God did great and amazing things. I hope this is a life-giving experience for you and not an obligation. But as we meet together, God does great and amazing things. And these people who gather, this ecclesia, is on a mission. They're on the mission to take the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to the whole world. And so it's a group of people gathering on a mission which makes them a movement. A movement is a gathering of people on a mission. And so the church, the ecclesia, was a movement. And it was dangerous to be a Christian back then because Christianity was illegal. Christianity was seen as a cult. Rome was threatened by Christianity. See, Christianity said, no, Caesar is not the son of God. By the way, that was a political statement. People said that Caesar was the son of God. There was one Caesar, one Roman emperor, who called himself the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It was a political statement. Christianity said, no, 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 Caesar is not God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. You know, saying a statement like that in Rome could get you killed. See, Christianity said, not Rome first, but the kingdom of God first. Not empire, but kingdom. Saying stuff like that could get you killed. And that's what happened with Christians. They were killed. They were martyred for their faith. There was this time, uh, Nero in the 60s, like not 1960s, but 60s, um, set Rome on fire and he blamed the Christians for it and persecuted them and killed them because of their faith. And ultimately he used them as a scapegoat for the burning of Rome. See, it was illegal to be a Christian at the time. And Christianity was this underground thing. Like in order to be a Christian, like you had to be real serious about your faith. But then came 313 AD, and this was the year that the movement died, because it was in 313 AD that Constantine, the emperor of Rome, became a Christian himself, and he legalized Christianity. And it was in this moment that everybody became a Christian. It was the cool thing to do. It was the end thing to do. Like, you could become a Christian and, like, not even live it out. Like, you're just a Christian by name. And I know we don't know anything about that, but back then, that's what they did, right? And so it was just a cool thing. You're, you're a Christian. Yeah, I go to church. I do my thing, whatever. But, but they didn't have to live it out. And this is when the movement died because people weren't hungry anymore. You didn't have to be serious about your faith anymore. And this was also the time where the church got to meet publicly in buildings, right? These buildings in Latin were called basilicas. So the church would gather in a basilica. Uh, in, the, in the Germanic language, in the Gothic language, the, the name for a basilica, the gathering, the meeting place was Kirika, which later became translated as church. So this ecclesia, this movement, this gathering of people started meeting in buildings. By the way, there's nothing wrong with a building. We meet in a building. It's great. It's a great building. Love this building. We're, we're actually looking for our own permanent location. And so if you could be in prayer for that and be giving toward that, that'd be awesome. But nothing wrong with buildings. But what happened 
was this movement, this gathering of people, this ecclesia started meeting in a location and then people got the location confused with the movement. People got the location confused with the gathering of people and they started to think that the church was a place that you go to. A church was a thing that you did, right? And this is translated into our language and our culture today because what do you say? Do you go to church? I'm going to church. What church do you go to? Church in our mind has become a place that we meet at and the movement has died. But I say, no more. I say, it's time to reclaim the movement because the church is not a building. The church is a gathering of people. When you came here today, you brought the church to the building. And when you leave today, you take the church with you. You take the church into your family, into your neighborhood, into your workplace, into this city. The church is not a building, no more. It's a movement. And I say it's time to reclaim this movement. And we won't stop, can't stop, until Jesus runs this town. But what's that mean? Because see, now I got you excited. You thought this was just going to be a history lesson the whole time. And now you're like, okay, we're a movement, but what's that mean? What's it mean to be a movement? What's it mean for Jesus to run this town? I want to I show you what it means by looking at a time where Jesus entered into a town, and we can take a look and see what exactly happened. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, just in case it's a little different from what you're reading from. Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. It says this, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he had did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of God, or Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. I can hear. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And then Luke, who is a reporter, he interviewed a bunch of people to find out what happened in this instance, and here's how he records it. He said, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them, shut up. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. There's four things that we see that happen in the city of Jerusalem when Jesus enters it. The first thing is this, people take notice. When Jesus enters into a town, people take notice. It says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Who is this? When Jesus enters into a town, when he runs this town, people take notice. I wonder, I wonder do, do people take notice 
of what's going on here in downtown Norfolk? Do people take notice that there's this church that exists here in downtown Norfolk that has this message of love and grace that no matter who you are, where you've been and what you've done, God loves you and he calls you to greatness? I wonder, do people take notice do, do people take notice? I mean, I hope so. I mean, a, a couple of years ago, we did the largest egg drop the city of Norfolk has ever seen. We laid 40,000 eggs out on the field at Ghent School, and we dropped thousands of them from a helicopter. 4,000 people showed up that day. A couple months ago, we gave out uh, free beer and burgers to dads at church, right? We doubled our attendance on Father's Day because of that. Last year on Father's Day, we had 144 people. This past Father's Day, 288 people. I guess giving out beer works. You don't come for Jesus, come for the craft beer, I guess. Well, sure. Maybe stay for Jesus, I don't know. We, um, man, we've advertised in the mall at MacArthur Center. We've advertised before movies. We've had people passing out cards outside this concert venue. Uh, as people exit for a show. So we let them know, hey, you came to a show here. You've actually come to our church, right? You've been to the Rising before. Just come on Sunday morning. And so we pass out invite cards to people. They're on 4th of July when thousands of people flood to uh, Town Point Park. We pass out cards and koozies. We've had radio ads on 96X. We've, we've been in the newspaper. We've been on the news before. Like we do everything we can to try and get the name out, to try and get the word out, not just about our church, but ultimately about Jesus. But the question I still ask is what more could we do? What more could we do so that people take notice? Let me ask you, do the people you work with know about this place? The people you're in school with? The people in your family, do they know that there's a place where they can find hope? They won't know unless you tell them. You know, one of the best ways for you to tell people about church is to grab an invite card as you exit. We have them at the black tables every single week. We got them on carabiners, and I think you have a carabiner on your, on your chair. So we gave you those carabiners so that you can then take those and clip them to your, um, your belt loop or your um, purse or... I was gonna say something else, but I won't. Um, and then you can attach cards to that so you'll have invite cards with you all the time. Dave's like, no, don't say it. He doesn't even know what I'm gonna say. He's like, don't say it, I won't, I promise. Um, but you can have invite cards with you everywhere you go and just tell people, hey, I'm a part of this church, you should come check it out. Listen for somebody to talk about how they're hurting and say, you know, the place I found healing is at my church, you should come check it out. Listen for somebody to talk about how they need direction or whatever, say, you know, the place I found direction is at my church, you should come check it out. So grab some invite cards, tell people about what's going on here. If God is doing something great in your life, don't shut up about it. Just keep talking about it. Now don't talk about it in, a, in an obnoxious way, right? If you died tonight, would you be with the Lord Jesus or not? No, don't say that. Just say, you should come check out my church. Come and see. Come and see. That's all. Just come and see. Another way to get the word out and just to let people know is we have decals at the back. Bump, well, they're cooler than bumper stickers. They're decals. Grab one. Put it on your car and drive pretty decently, right? But drive around and then people begin to see that. See, see when Jesus entered into a city, people took notice. I wonder, do people take notice? I wonder if we shut down, would anybody care? If we shut the doors and we never met again, would anybody in our city notice? I think we can step it up some. Some people took notice. That's what it looks like when Jesus enters into a town. But I wonder too, when you enter into, a wor into your workplace, do people take notice because of your attitude of joy? People are taking notice of you. 
you, you're sending a message, either a message of negativity or joy. Which one is it? When people take notice of you, what do they see? So, so people take notice of Jesus. The, the, the second one is this. When Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, he disrupts the status quo. He disrupts the status quo. He said that Jesus went into the, to the temple and he started turning over tables. He actually made a whip out of some cords and started hitting people and driving them out of the, the temple. And it was these people who were taking advantage of other people. See, what had happened at the time is people would set up shop right there in the temple and uh, as pilgrims and people came to, to honor God and worship him and sacrifice to him, they would bring their animals and, and these, these, uh, these sellers of doves and, and sellers of sheep would, would stop people and say, hey, your dove is too little. You can't sacrifice that to God. You have to have our temple approved dove to sacrifice to God. So we'll take your little dove and you can pay us the difference and we'll give you an approved sacrifice for God. But you know, in order for you to do that, you got to use temple money and you got real money. So I want you to change your money in for temple money. We're going to charge you a fee for doing that though. And then you'll pay us the temple money back. And so people were being ripped off by these people who are trying to make a profit from God, a, a corrupt profit, I should say. As Jesus enters into the temple and he sees this corruption and this injustice going on, and he said, this isn't right. So he disrupts the status quo. He drives them out of the temple so that people could come to God freely and nothing would inhibit them or hinder them. So Jesus disrupts the status quo. He, he enters into the city and he looks around and he sees what's wrong and he says, this is unacceptable. See, when a church exists in a city, we look around and we say, there are kids going to bed hungry every night. There are parents who have to sacrifice eating so their kids can eat. That is unacceptable. And we will not stand for that. And because of that, we support the food bank of Hampton Roads so that people who are hungry can have the food that they need. We say that is unacceptable and we will do something about it. We look around and we say poverty is an injustice, homelessness, people suffering in this way. We don't want to give people a hand out, but we do want to give people a hand up. And so because of that, we're going to support ministries like Penn Ministry and Four Kids who helps homeless families so they can enter into their situation with people in poverty and homelessness and help them rise up out of the systemic problem that they have. We say as a church, we're going to support that because this is unacceptable. We say it is unacceptable for almost a billion people to go without access to clean drinking water. And so we are going to support Charity Water as they bring wells to people in Africa and around the world who don't have access to clean drinking water. When a church exists in a city, we rise up and we say, this is unacceptable. We will not stand for this. We say, what? Wait, people are bought and sold today? There's still slavery that goes on, 28 million slaves in the world today, more than in the transatlantic slave trade that happened hundreds of years ago. That's still happening. People are bought and sold. That is unacceptable. And we will not stand for that, so we will stand for change. And as a church, we support A21 campaign by giving to them, contributing to their mission to eradicate human trafficking. We say it's unacceptable that people would not have a copy of the scriptures in their own language. And because of that, we support Jacob and Elizabeth Smith, the pioneer Bible translators, who just recently, a couple weeks ago, 
gave to the mum people for the first time the gospel of Matthew in their own language. There were about a thousand people who showed up for that event. It was a dedication ceremony and listen, Elizabeth contacted me and said, we're doing this dedication of the book of Matthew. Do you think the rising can help us with this? I said, how much is it for the whole event, for the printing of the gospel, for the binding of the gospel, for the paper and the pens, the food, the, the invites, everything you need to throw this big party for the dedication of Matthew? How much is it? And I think she said it was about $5,000. I said, don't call another church and ask them for help. We will pay for the entire cost of the dedication of the book of Matthew for the mum people. You know why I could do that? Because we say it is unacceptable and we rise up and give as a generous church. I can't do that if we don't live with open hands. But we live with open hands and we're generous like we are because we just realize when Jesus enters into a town, he disrupts the status quo. The, the third thing he does is he brings about resurrection. He brings resurrection. It says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Jesus healed blind eyes. He brought life back to those dead eyes. He brought life back to dead, crippled legs. He healed people. When Jesus enters into a town, he brings about resurrection. The reason why we started this church is to let people know that regardless of who you are, where you've been and what you've done, God loves you. And I know you've made a mess of things. Same here. Same here. I have too. I know you don't have it all together. Same here. I know you're broken in all sorts of ways. Same here. Same here. But the great thing is, I've come to discover a God who brings about resurrection. And he says, all your flaws, all your faults, all your failures, I will enter into that and redeem you and bring what was dead back to life. So when a church exists in a city, marriages that are dying come back to life. Depression is done away with. Hope is restored. This is what happens when a church exists in a city. And this has happened in so many of your lives. This is why you're here today because you've experienced the resurrection of God firsthand. And some of you are here today and you're saying, I need that. I need that. I want that. I want that in my life. This addiction keeps killing me. I want to be free from it. Jesus specializes in resurrection and giving you freedom. And it's only found in Jesus and his power. So when Jesus enters into a city, he brings about resurrection. Finally, 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 finally. When Jesus enters into a town... People take notice, he disrupts the status quo, and as a result of that, people turn to him. Luke 19, 37, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them stop. He said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. When Jesus enters into a town, people turn to him. They take notice. He disrupts the status quo. He brings about resurrection. And people turn to him. And so this is what happens when Jesus enters into a town. But 
you may be wondering, okay, well, that's nice. Thanks for the history lesson. I appreciate knowing what happens when Jesus enters into a town. But this series is until Jesus runs this town. So what does that look like? What does that mean for me? Glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, all of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. When we say until Jesus runs this town, we're not talking about Jesus being here, Jesus the person becoming the mayor of the city of Norfolk. We're not talking about that. We're talking about you and I, the body of Christ, the physical representation of Jesus, which that's what we are. We are the representation of Jesus in this city. We're talking about when the church runs this town. And I'm not talking about we're going to set up a theocracy. This is an Amish country. We're not in puritanical New England. I'm talking about when you and I rise up and decide church is not a place I go. Church is not something I do, but church is who I am. And I am a movement. So when we say until Jesus runs this town, we're saying until you and I take the love of God out into this city so that the 250,000 residents of the city of Norfolk know that there's a God who loves them so that the over a million people who live in the seven cities come to discover there's a God who's called them by name when we say until Jesus runs this town what we're saying is until the love of God the grace of God the hope of God runs this town until marriages are healed until depression is done away with until hope is restored until people discover that they are loved and God has called them to something greater we can't stop won't stop until Jesus runs this town, we can't stop, won't stop, can't stop, won't stop. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We pray you were inspired and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, sign up to serve on a team, join a group, or just find out more information on The Rising, visit us at wearetherising.com.